The artists who played five disparate characters faced their challenges with skill, faith, and intelligence. For best performance by an actor in a leading role, the nominees are Robert Downey Jr. in Chaplin, Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, Al Pacino in Scent of a Woman, Stephen Ray in The Crying Game, Denzel Washington in Malcolm X, and the Oscar, the Oscar goes to Hello there, tango dancers and Ferrari drivers, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Still the only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands. My name is Lee Charles, and Spro is here too. Spro, can you dance the tango? I may have conjured this memory, but for some reason I, I remember you taking ballroom dance classes at some point. If you didn't, you strike me as the kind of fellow who will someday. I do love to ballroom dance. I've been doing it in empty, or not empty living rooms. I've been doing it in living rooms and houses since starting to date in senior year of high school. But the only dance lesson I ever took was Jitterbug in college. Mm. It was being offered in a space above a bar that was like three buildings from my dorm room. And my partner was a stranger who I've never felt hands that pooled so much sweat than hers. Like yeah. the palms were literally little mini puddles of sweat. Uh, she seemed a sweetheart, but yeah, that's that's what I remember from the only dance class I've ever taken. All right. So I was right. I thought so. You know, it seemed like a classy activity for a classy guy. Although that sweat, sweaty hand story is kind of gross. <laughs> But anyway, speaking of class, today's show, we're going back into the classroom for another edition of our Poly, poly Academy, Poly Academy series. We suck at naming things, you know, that's just, that's, just give us a break. If you were with us last time, we alienated septuagenarians and in, anyone really who remembers the Honeymooners with affinity when we took Art Carney's Best Actor Oscar away for his performance in the 1974 film Harry and Tonto and gave it to Albert Pacino for his second performance as Michael Corleone. Then I still feel good about it. Carney didn't deserve that award. It was a political award meant to recognize his contributions to the TV world. But I actually found out a bit of information in the interim uh, that you might find interesting, Spro. Are you ready? I am. So Pacino boycotted the Oscar ceremony of 73, which is interesting because so did Marlon Brando, but for different reasons. So he protested, Pacino protested what he viewed as category fraud. And this is quoted, as his performance reflected greater screen time than that of his co-star Marlon Brando, Pacino believed he should have received a nomination for Best Actor in a Leading Role. As you know, he was nominated for Best Supporting. We talked about that uh, two weeks ago. So with almost no clout in the industry, and at a time when his only lead acting credit in a film was for Panic at Needle Park, Pacino tried to take on the Academy. And I'm thinking that might have had a little bit to do with him being snubbed for 20 years. Quite possible. I don't know about the 20 years. We're about to get into how lacking <laughs> his portfolio was after, you know, in the 80s and, and 90s, there wasn't a whole lot that Pacino was turning in that could be award worthy. But it is a good point. It is also funny that we went over, I think the last episode, or maybe it was one of the episodes earlier, that it's not necessarily the Academy that is also choosing where you are put 
category wise. It's also your production team. And I wonder how much of that was Coppola saying, we want Marlon for best actor and Al Pacino for best supporting actor. So him to boycott just primarily the academies. I wonder, was that the fancier headline or did he have more? Was it also a reason that Godfather Part 3 didn't come out till the 80s because there was tension or 1990, right? Yes, 1990. I didn't see yeah. anything. I didn't see anything about that. Yeah, that might have been more like in-house, but yeah, because for a refresher, the Academy will vote for best acting performance. They will even give nominations toward both categories if there is a discrepancy. Perhaps it was the Academy that gave more best acting nominations toward Marlon Brando than Al Pacino. Or maybe it was the production team behind Godfather Part 1 that said, we want to put Marlon on the cover, you know, on the poster. We want Marlon's name in lights at the Academy Awards. And so I think a lot of people probably snubbed Al Pacino with The Godfather. And he took it out on the Academy, which is one of them. Well, I mean, I think the movie lends itself to a, not that it's right, but it almost I don't know. Maybe it just seems natural because ever since learning of the Academy and, and you know, reading about it, uh, you know, as a 13 year old kid, it just seems natural that, of course, Marlon Brando would be nominated for best actor for The Godfather and his three of his four sons would be nominated for best supporting actor. Um, well, here's the other thing, too. Marlon Brando won, correct? Mm-hmm. So Al Pacino really had no shot <laughs> <laughs> for best actor, right? Like, maybe that's the other reason why they were like, you're going to be supporting actor because Marlon Brando is a shoe in. This is the only way you possibly get your Academy Award, deservedly so, for The Godfather Part One. Yeah. I mean, it is nowadays, anyway, it feels like it's all about. When it comes to the acting categories, it's very much about campaigns. <laughs> we are not here to talk about Pacino anymore. Well, I guess we are. I will say what I love about these episodes based on performance is that you don't necessarily have to watch the whole film in order to intake who should have won. Best performance out of all the films that year should be flawless. I always find how much we pay, how much we sacrifice for celebrities to be since like pro athletes. It's not like if we woke up tomorrow and all of our favorite actors, singers or record breaking athletes were gone, if anything would stop. The world is full of talent. And when one stops being the greatest, another equally talented will fill that top spot. So if all five of the Oscar nominated performances were just not around for this year, there would be five other ones kind of in the mix. And we're finding that more and more that there are nominations that were left on the table that didn't find its spot on the grand stage. So when viewing these movies, should an actor misstep 10 minutes into the film, I can cross their name off the list and move on to the next, especially if the film doesn't grab me. When we do best film, it's a little harder because the flaw might not show up until the third act. Interesting point. So we know where we're going with this, but uh, maybe our listeners don't. This episode, we're talking about the best actor of 1993, which if you haven't noticed by this point, we adopted the can't beat him, join him. And instead of 
referring to the actual year that the movies came out and the performances were made, et cetera, et cetera. We're doing it the way the Academy does it, where it's like... Although, I'm slowly... So, like, any of, like, the recent ceremonies, now I'm, like, referring to the last Oscars as the 93rd Oscars, especially as we count down to the 100th Oscar program. So, I wonder... I don't know. I'm just kind of predicting my own behavior that maybe in the future I'll just start not going by the ceremony I, I can't, number. I can't. I can't remember the ceremony numbers. I can't remember the Super Bowl numbers either. What <laughs> no, that? I'm with you on that one. So let's start with who won, uh, which we believe was the wrong best actor of 1993. And that would be Al Pacino in playing Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. And I don't want to shit all over Al. It's kind of special to me, just like Art Carney's kind of special to Boomers and beyond. But man, this performance seems like a joke. I have this weird thing with Pacino when I compare his 70s films, like The Godfather movies, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, to his 90s films, Heat, Devil's Advocate, Dick Tracy. It's as if a different person inhabited his his skin, and the 80s represented a slump for Pacino's career, and other than Scarface, nothing from this decade seems really worth watching, but... And I think that probably adds to it, too, because I'm so familiar with his 70s work and I'm so familiar with his 90s work. And there's this gap of like 10-ish years where he didn't really make anything that I think is worth a damn. And in that ensuing decade, he becomes this like screaming madman who's yelling in all of his his roles. He just seems like a different (laughs) dude. You broke my streak. Hmm? (laughs) The last, I, I, I was at an affair recently. Thank you so much for this, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> I was at an, a, 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 a ceremonial type thing like this recently, and I, uh, I didn't have a speech. I kept going into my pocket for a speech, but I never wrote one, but now I got one. So, so, it's here, and I should have had a little water before I got on because my mouth's dry. But I thank you, and I just have to say, uh, first, I don't know where he is in the house, I can't pick him out, but I gotta thank him. Uh, I'm completely indebted to Marty Brest, who, who directed the picture, and who had, uh, uh, he, he had such great love for this character I played, and uh, that love is what he communicated to me every day, so I thank you, Marty, for that. I thank Bo Goldman, who wrote such a complicated, interesting, funny guy that could be uh, and would be any actor's dream part. That part was so great. I think I thank Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell, my co-star in this, was, he made every day a pleasure for me. Uh, and I thank the wonderful supportive cast and crew, of course. I also want to thank Tom Pollock and Casey Silver at Universal Pictures and my agent, Rick Nasita, who urged me to do this part and uh, actually threatened me if I didn't do it because I didn't want to do the part for some reason. Uh, Ira Lewis, my friend and my colleague who helped me, Ira Lewis, and the Associated Blind for their generous support to me. Uh, If you'll indulge me for a minute, because I'm just not used to this, so I had to write this down. I I had this thought, and I thought if I ever got up here, I would say it. I've been very lucky, and uh, I, I've, I've been lucky. I found desire for what I, I do early in my life, and I'm lucky because I had people who encouraged 
that desire. And uh, from Lee Strasberg to my great friend and mentor, Charlie Lawton, to the great writers and filmmakers that I've been fortunate enough to work with. Now, recently, a young girl came up to me. Uh, I was at a function for the South Bronx, which is where I'm from. And uh, she said that I had encouraged her. And that's not necessarily by my work, but just by the fact that uh, we came from the same place. And uh, I just can't forget that girl. Uh, and I can't forget the kids out there who may be thinking tonight uh, that if he can do it, I can do it. So uh, this is really a proud and hopeful moment for me because uh, I want to thank the Academy for giving us a gift of encouragement. And this is a gift, a great gift to me. I thank you all, really. Thank you. It was also kind of surprising that he only did five movies in the 80s. I don't know. He he does go back and do theater. Maybe he was becoming more of a family man. I'm sure the royalty checks for everything that you just listed in the 70s were abundant and constantly coming. So he didn't have to do much work. So it's probably safe to assume that despite being nearly 30 years old, most of our listeners have seen Scent of a Woman. This movie, believe it or not, was the first and last time that Pacino won an Oscar. He plays, like I said, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade, a blind man who worships women and recognizes a variety of different perfumes, hence the kind of gross title. I mean, if you really think about it, it's kind of a gross title. He no longer desires to live, and he's planned a final weekend complete with bucket list type stuff to do, such as have sex with a prostitute, which, you know, if it was even filmed, was thankfully left on the cutting room floor. Once he's had his fill of insulting his caretaker, Charlie, played by Chris O'Donnell, he sends the boy out on an errand so he can peacefully kill himself. That way, Charlie won't hear the gunshot and then discover Slade. Instead, the man's dead body would be a lovely surprise for old Charlie Sims. Mighty thoughtful. So without intending to, I don't think, Pacino created one of the most often imitated performances of the 90s. And not one of those performances that people imitate because it was good, like maybe Ted Levine in The Silence of the Lambs. That's a pretty imitated 90s performance performance. Yeah, sure. There were parts where Pacino in this movie aims for comedy, but there's plenty of parts where he like unintentionally makes us giggle. The character's bombastic on the page to begin with, but Pacino brings a whole new level to the word maximize. And this is just a little too characteristic of his 90s work with Heat being another strong example, but a better movie in my opinion. Women. What could you say? Who made him? God must have been a fucking genius. Hair. They say the hair is everything, you know. Have you ever buried your nose in a mountain of curls? Just wanted to go to sleep forever. Or lips. And when they touched yours were like at first swallow of wine after you just crossed the desert. Tits. Whoa. Big ones, little ones. Nipples staring right out at you like secret searchlights. <clears throat> Legs. I don't care if they're Greek columns. 
or secondhand Steinways. What's between them? Passport to heaven. I need a drink. Yes, Mr. Sims. There's only two syllables in this whole wide world worth hearing. You listen to me, son. I'm giving you pearls here. <laughs> I guess you really like women. Oh, above all things. A very, very distant second is a Ferrari. Charlie? Give me a hand. This is just the start of your education, son. So, of course, we have lives outside of the podcast, and we have people that we talk to, and I know that you and I will talk to other people outside of the podcast and just let them know kind of what we're doing and what the episode is going to be about. And mainly adults would say, oh, but I liked Scent of a Woman. And I feel like almost every episode, I want to clarify that it's not necessarily about what you like. It's about what you can award. Perhaps a listener likes bombastic Pacino, like some might prefer the zany mask Jim Carrey or crazy frayed gray hair Jack Nicholson. And I get it. And while I like Scent of a Woman, I mean, this movie was a movie that played on my VCR some mornings while getting ready for school. It's got a really kind of 90s-esque soundtrack. Uh, I like all the scenes of Charlie going back and forth with his friends. I've always liked Philip Seymour Hoffman in the background roles that he had. I like him in this movie. I like him in Twister. They're not, of course, star shining examples of his work, but he plays a really good, you know, friend character. But this is a role where Al Pacino tellingly falls back on an emotion. It's noticeable. The most in Pacino is, I'd say, like, act two break, maybe, when he wants to kill himself and Charlie stops him and he's screaming, I'm in the dark here! It's good. I'll blow your fucking head off. Do it. You want to do it? Do it. Let's go. Get out of here. You fucked up, all right? So what? So everybody does it. Get on with your life, would you? What life? I got no life. I'm in the dark here! Do you understand? I'm in the dark! It's more intriguing that his eyes stare off as if blind than the fact that there's really no emotion being conveyed other than shouting. It's just, when you break it down, the most impressive thing that Al Pacino did was stare off into space with this role. But 
So unlike Carney, who since the episode, I've told people, yeah, no, we took the Oscar away from Mark Carney, who 40 and 50 year olds even to me were like, who? And I'm like, okay, great. Mm -hmm. I guess unlike Carney, where I didn't even understand the nomination, I don't necessarily mind that Al Pacino was nominated for this role. I think that was, no, actually, as we go along with this episode, I might change my mind on even that. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. But before we get into it, let's do some (laughs) Oscar fun facts with Spro, brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd dog. Well, you already gave a mini fun fact about uh, Al Pacino boycotting the Oscars, and I think I saw some more little fun facts sprinkled throughout your notes for this episode. So this fun fact, not a raving rant like the last one, but is an observation people can take with them. It was very apparent in last year's Oscar broadcast, like I said, the 93rd ceremony, that Hollywood loves itself. Perhaps we all knew this, but the broadcast had not one, but two segments on how much Hollywood either did for itself or America during the pandemic. Despite the fact that Hollywood should be our bastion of entertainment where we can turn to to get away from our lives. And really, the only thing that people were talking about was the Tiger King. We were all wondering where all the good movies were at as Hollywood backburnered release dates in order to wait for theaters to open up again to make as much profit as possible. I would have really enjoyed seeing Black Widow to get away from my May blues back in the day. But... So Tyler Perry and Motion Picture and Television Fund won the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. And I only point this out only because it had been 12 years since the Gene Herschel Award was given out on air. They had not presented it on TV since 2009. So the fact that they brought it back for 2021 was telling. And it felt more like Hollywood during a year of immense suffering and confusion was patting itself on the back again. But as we dove into 1992, a year when Tim Robbins' name kept coming up for the movie The Player, which wasn't necessarily a great performance in a great movie, it was noticeable that Hollywood has a habit of watching movies about itself first, which lends itself to nominating these films because as human habit, we gravitate toward movies about ourselves. Like I'm a Cleveland boy at heart and at address. I think I've seen every movie set in Cleveland out there. 
And a lot aren't great, and nothing has usurped 1989's Major League in my eyes. But here's the thing, making films about Hollywood. I'm unclear on my thoughts, really, and I'm unclear about my thoughts moving forward, which is why I'm broaching it as an Oscar fun fact. It is not inventive for a writer to write about a writer. It is not labor-intensive for an actor to act as an actor. The production design of a studio lot can be found outside most of these producers' office doors. And really, if you visit Hollywood and you take a studio tour, you'll realize that the studios look like much like they did back in the good old days. You put the film in black and white there, David Fincher, and (laughs) you transport yourself back. So why are the Oscars, who have 800 films to pick from a year, so giving to films filmed within itself? I started to think off the top of my head of recent Oscar-nominated films and came up with, right off the bat, Mank, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, La La Land, The Artist, Adaptation, A Couple of the Star is Borns, I think it was 54 and 37, Sunset Boulevard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a fun one, Singing in the Rain, I pimped out the question to others who brought up Bowfinger, which I forgot about. And I even, I think I brought it up to the show last season. Mm-hmm. Get Shorty, Hail Caesar, Mulholland Drive, State in Maine. All About Eve is one of my favorite Oscar winners, but I think that's about actresses on the stage, I feel. I mean, there's like things like LA Confidential. If you open up to entertainment in general, then there's like Birdman and Synecdoche, New York. Truman Show, Man on the Moon, Network, Chicago. I completely understand why these films are nominated. I completely understand Hollywood feeling itself and loving itself. That's basic humanity. But I think when it comes to these films, if I was to implore our audience to do anything, it would be to second guess these films first. And I think these films should come under harder scrutiny. Take on the Academy is already on record saying Emma Stone's win for playing an actress in La La Land probably wasn't as deserving as Natalie Portman as a grieving, young, controlling first lady as Jackie Onassis or Ruth Negga as a soft-spoken, full-hearted crusader for the right to love who she wanted Mildred loving. It's like that note they give dancers. Breathe hard after the dance, regardless, so people think you gave it your all. So Hollywood is going to nominate Hollywood. Hollywood might even reward Hollywood. It's up to us to not let them convince us that it was as hard as other jobs just because they're breathing like it was. It's good, man. I mean, it's like your Oscar fun facts. We should almost like maybe change the segment to being called like cinema sermons by Spro or something like that. <laughs> Cause they do like, like there's a, there was a cohesiveness to that and it ends like a, like a sermon. Thanks man. I do believe. So I love the Academy Awards. I love Hollywood. I love movies. I love cinema. It's kind of like why we're here. It's not anytime we bash something or take an Oscar, you know, it's not out of, hate for what's going on it's out of want and love for everything to be better and especially at this time when any asshole with an iphone can make a movie and somehow those things are making it to silver screens this this industry is kind of getting diluted so i really feel like we need at least the academy at least the academy awards to step up and be kind of a jerk and be like, this is, we need to start really circling our area of what makes good cinema. Do you watch the Grammys? I sure do not. Okay. So the Grammys feels like they're now awarding just popular music instead of good music, right? It was the last controversy I heard heard over the Grammys was Beck winning over Beyonce. And a lot of 
musicians and musicologists were breaking it down saying, but Beck, you know, plays all these instruments. He's, he's a genius and rada, rada, rada. And Beyonce is overproduced and it's kind of, and now it seems like everything that's overproduced is what is winning. And so I need the Academy Awards to keep their feet in the sand and just be a harbinger of good art. Talent. Talent. Yeah. Of what what people should be going toward when it comes to fine cinema and not just movies. I think the last two years, at least with Best Picture, they've, they've given out some pretty good awards. Speaking of which, I finally got around to watching uh, Parasite. Uh, what'd you think? I liked it. Unfortunately, it got uh, it did get spoiled for me. Parasite made me think of a movie that I'd already seen called Housebound. Did you ever, did you ever hear of Housebound? Yeah, you recommended it to me. Did you watch it? It got it went in the background for me. Ugh, really? It's fucking great. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's fucking great. It's kind of got the same twist as Parasite, but I I don't know. I thought I thought Housebound's delivery was better, but and I've watched Nomadland three times now, so. I still think The Father and uh, Pieces of a Woman were better movies, but I was ha- I was ha- I was happy with those last two. I, f- I feel like, you know, as they are growing and changing with the with the times, I think it's just going to bring in new work and different work. Was it 2016 when uh, everybody thought La La Land won, and then it went to a movie about um, black homosexual American kid. That's pretty wild. You know, that's not something yeah. that's not something I thought I would have seen in my day. I think you have softened me. I started season 1 really embittered and spiteful towards the Academy Awards and I'm still, I don't know. I'm still not totally sold, but I think your your passion is uh contagious. Good. It's good shit. Yeah, yeah, I just don't want the Academy Awards to be the MTV Movie Awards. Everything has its place. I enjoy seeing what the MTV Movie Awards awarded, but it's different audiences. And regardless of how waning high art audiences are, I feel like the Academy Awards should be the award show for them. I agree. Can we talk a little bit about a couple people that I think didn't get any love and might have deserved it? Absolutely. Go for it. Did you watch Bad Lieutenant starring Harvey Keitel? I did after your recommendation for it. And? I was surprised to see Harvey Keitel's name up. Reservoir Dogs came out this year, right? From your boy QT. Mm-hmm. I liked his performance in that better. Any reason why? <laughs> He's going to let that hang in the air? <laughs> to me, it suited his persona better. All right. Well, before we keep going, let's make sure everybody knows where we're coming from. So, Bad Lieutenant, Harvey Keitel plays LT in Bad Lieutenant. He doesn't get a name. And while I was in the middle of watching it, I paused it and jumped on IMDb just to to poke around. And IMDb's plot summary for the movie is, while investigating a young nun's rape, a corrupt New York City police detective with a serious drug and gambling addiction tries to change his ways and find forgiveness and redemption. I was over halfway through this movie when I paused it and read that, and I saw no possible way that the animal that Kaitel plays could ever be forgiven or redeemed, but it actually g- gets there. So Kaitel's never been a favorite of mine. I don't know about you, but he pops up a lot in Scorsese's films and in a few of Tarantino's films. He was ac- actually pretty instrumental in getting Reservoir Dogs the cast that it got. If it wasn't for him, they would have never gone to taken the casting sessions to New York and picked up Steve Buscemi. 
I never knew that. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? I've kind of always thought that his style was better suited for supporting roles. So I think two of his best performances, in my opinion, are Taxi Driver and Pulp Fiction. And the reason that I don't think... The reason that I don't think he's anything special in Reservoir Dogs maybe is because there's just so many good actors around him that I'm paying a lot less attention to him. I'm not saying he's he does a bad job in Res Dogs, but I just think in Bad Lieutenant, he's never been better. He's playing the most despicable and disgusting cop ever committed to film. Maybe one of the worst human beings ever committed to film. And if you've seen the movie, you know. If you haven't and you're interested, uh, I recommend it. But only if you are not someone who gets um, upset and or triggered. Yeah. No. Yeah. Any drugs in the car? No. No. No drugs? No. Where were you tonight? We are at the cat club. Yeah? We were at the, yeah, we were at the cat club, big deal. No, I should take you in for driving without a license and registration, you know that, don't you? That's a serious thing. Huh? You have to call your father up. I, How do you feel about that? Don't, don't do that. Yeah? All you girls doing at the, uh, what was it, the Kit Kat Club? You little stone there? Huh? Come on, I'm not gonna... I'll do the right thing if you do the right thing, huh? I know what it's like to get stoned a little bit, you know, to get high a little bit. You getting stoned there? Huh? You have any grass there, Coke? We smoked a little grass. Yeah? How would your father feel if he knew that you were here now? You won't tell him. Well, it depends. What do you think about that? Couple of very beautiful girls, you know that? Come on, give us a break. C couldn't, couldn't you just give us a warning for not having for the tail light and let us go home? Well, you know something, two such beautiful girls like you, I could give you a warning. You want a warning? Well, here's the warning. You do something for me, and I'll do something for you. What do you say about that? You do something for me, and your father won't find out you took his car and you drive without a license. So the answer to why he didn't get nominated is because this movie was rated NC-17, in my opinion. I think that's why. The precursor to the NC-17 rating was X, and though I'm not sure if softening that distinction has done anything to help movies that get saddled with it, because according to my research, the Academy has recognized two X-rated films, Midnight Cowboy and A Clockwork Orange. Cowboy won picture, director, and screen screenplay, and in my opinion, should have won Hoffman his first very deserved Best Actor Oscar over John fucking Wayne for True Grit. Here's another example of a thank you Oscar, though, for real, uh, but I digress. Kubrick's Clockwork was nominated for those same three categories, plus one for Best Editing, took home nothing. And both of these films have since been re-rated as R without a single cut being made. But there's one NC-17 film that still retains its Scarlet rating, and the Academy recognized it. And that is Last Tango in Paris. Tango was nominated for actor and director, but won neither. So why do I think that this movie deserved a Best Actor nomination? So according to co-writer and director Abel Ferrara, the lead role was supposed to go to Chris Walken, and he pulled out at the last minute. He didn't think he was right for the part. 
So Keitel comes into the picture, reportedly hated the first 15 pages of the script so much that he chucked the screenplay across the room, but eventually forced himself to keep reading. And once he was on board, it seems as though he brought some serious creative input. Abel Ferrara says that the film was originally supposed to be funny. It was always, in my mind, a comedy, Ferrara said, which is just fucking bonkers to consider. He cited the scene where the lieutenant pulls the teenage girls over as a specific example of how Chris Walken would have played it and how Harvey Keitel changed it. So the lieutenant was going to end up dancing in the streets with the girls as the sun came up, which is quite a turn from where it goes. Uh, They would be wearing his gun belt and hat and they'd have the radio on. But oh my God, Harvey, he turned it into this whole other thing. That's that sequence is just uh, fuck. Maybe one of the most fucked up scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Um, yeah, the actress in the driver's seat with minimal lines, but just facial expressions. Oh was, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So the late Roger Ebert makes a good point too. So not you know. First and foremost, what I'm saying here is I think Keitel brings something to the table. But the late Roger Ebert makes the point that not too many actors want to be seen in this kind of a role. It's a serious gamble to play someone as truly as awful as LT is, but Keitel really steers into it. The film uh, was shot in 18 days, allegedly, reportedly. And to think Keitel was able to squeeze that performance out of himself with such little preparation and on such a brief shooting schedule, that to me is the pinnacle of talent and professionalism. So that's why I think he really truly got snubbed. It's a strong case. And I think right now you can stream it on Netflix. Mini fun fact, this was one of three films this episode that deals with penises. <laughs> and that, and this one is uh, just shown as Keitel is having a, you know, he's full frontal naked, having a drug experience slash meltdown. But see if you could guess the other two films as we move along. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the only other one that I wanted to mention, um, you already mentioned the player, but I wasn't going to talk very long about that one, is Edward James Olmos as Montoya Santana in American May. You know, a long time ago. Two best homeboys, two kids, were thrown into juvie. They were scared, and they thought they had to do something to prove themselves. And they did what they had to do. They thought they were doing it to gain respect for their people, to show the world that no one could take their class from them. No one had to take it from us, they say. Whatever we had, we gave it away. Take care of yourself, I'd heard of it. My job and where I live puts me around a very large Mexican-American population. And this movie is very revered. So I'd heard of it, but never seen it. Um, and people would would talk about it all the time. As soon as people found out that I like movies, they would all be like, well, you have to see American Me. Have you seen American Me? Almost produced, directed, and starred in this one. But the most interesting thing I think about it is that it almost got him killed. It's a Mexican-American crime drama. It's loosely based on real-life La M.A. boss Rodolfo Cheyenne Cadena. Cadena in the film is played by almost, but his name is changed to Montoya Santana, but it's him. He gets locked up at 16 in juvie, transferred to big boy prison once he turns 18. When he's in prison, he and his buddy JD, who is played by William Forsyth, 
terrorize and monopolize all of the different rackets in prison until La M.A. is on top. La M.A. just means the M, like the mafia, the Mexican mafia. So J.D. is also based on a real guy, Joe Pegleg Morgan. So the film itself doesn't really hang together as well as some of the genre's predecessors, but it's definitely exposed me to some shit that you do not see in Scorsese's crime films. And I think almost is so good, it doesn't even really matter that he's playing a character almost half his age. Almost should have been in the conversation for the 92 awards season, but instead, the only publicity that this movie created was of a violent nature. So there's this one scene where um, young Santana is asleep in uh, juvie. It's the first night he's there. He's in the barracks and he's raped at knife point by a fellow inmate. He manages to turn the knife on the rapist and kill him. And it's sort of implied in that moment that this dude has assaulted multiple inmates. So as a result of killing this guy, Santana earns the respect of damn near everybody in the joint, which springboards uh, him to power. But by depicting the rape on film, almost earned himself a death sentence. They put a contract, a La M.A. put a contract out on him. In fact, the repercussions were wider stretching than that. According to 60 Minutes, LA Times, and the Washington Post, three consultants on this film were later murdered because of the depiction of a homosexual rape scene, which offended the Mexican mafia gangster's machismo. And like I said, a hit was put out on Almost as well. Uh, Machete himself, Danny Trejo, corroborates these claims in an interview with DJ Vlad. Um, In fact, Trejo admits to having grown up with all those guys, meaning members of La M.A. And he even says that he and the late Eddie Bunker, with whom he spent time in San Quentin, Eddie Bunker was in uh, Reservoir Dogs. He and Eddie Bunker took almost out to lunch at a cafe in Encino when the movie was in production. And they told him, you can't do this. This being the rape scene. Almost claimed that he'd already spoken with Joe Pegleg Morgan and gotten the go ahead. Joe Pegleg Morgan was still alive. So almost lied, according to Trejo, and said that he got permission to show the scene. Trejo says that he lied and that Morgan never said it was okay and that the rape never took place. So the story that apparently is true is this. Cadena arrived at San Quentin and was met by a six foot five, 300 pound black inmate who planted a kiss on his face and announced that this scrawny teenager would now be his bitch. Cheyenne returned a short time later, walked up to the unsuspecting predator and stabbed him to death with a jailhouse knife or shiv. There were more than a thousand inmates on the yard. No witnesses stepped forward and only one dead man entertained the idea that Cadena was anybody's bitch. So instead of, I don't know what's true. Uh, I don't know if, I, I don't know. <laughs> do you if, believe in the jail yard? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, it doesn't matter to me what's true. It's just, it's interesting because I'd never heard that this movie caused this this stir. But in any event, instead of the story I just related, almost went with the rape scene. Why did he do it? Treo thinks it was his ego. And that might very well be true. Maybe he didn't know he was fucking with. Or maybe it was because the rape scene at the beginning kind of sets up two other rape scenes later in the movie that are cross-cut together um, really well. It's easily the most powerful and most disturbing part of the film. So I could see almost not wanting to lose that part of the movie. But in any event, because of this choice, several of the consultants on the film wound up dead. Treo says it was a total of 10 people, whereas all those other reporting sources said that it was three, but really only two are verifiable that I could find. Charles Charlie Brown Manriquez, a member of La M.A. who consulted on the film, was murdered 12 days after the film's premiere. And the other one is a woman named Ana Lizarraga, commonly known as the gang lady. Not only was she a consultant, but she's actually in the movie playing a grandmother. What really sucks is that she was a former gang member at that time. She was an anti-gang counselor. 
counselor. So she had changed her life and was dedicating her life to keeping other kids in the barrio out of fucking gangs. And she was murdered by carrying groceries into her house. Which she was murdered while carrying groceries. What did I say? By carrying carrying groceries. But with all that said, what makes Olmos's performance noteworthy? Yeah, I, I kind of I got caught up in the the mythos, but I don't know. I guess it's because Olmos is so rarely talked about by anyone anymore, except Battlestar Galactica fans or people quoting Blade Runner and Stand and Deliver. And like I said, American Me is an important film to the Latino community. Olmos is terrific, I think, in this movie. I think it's maybe his best performance. Certainly up there with Stand and Deliver. He is frightening. He's sympathetic. He's occasionally vulnerable. Pulls off that stoicism like Pacino and Godfather. I don't think I'd nominate him over anybody, but I just felt like it was too interesting of a story not to share. The other award shows, the BAFTAs, had only nominated four performance roles. Taking out what we're going to talk about with the Oscar nominations, we are only left with Daniel Day-Lewis in The Last of the Mohicans and Tim Robbins in The Player. And I already hinted at this in the fun fact, but I want to point out that I was initially surprised. This is evidence to the fact that I don't look up anything (laughs) before I put myself in the medium. But I was surprised that the player wasn't about baseball. (laughs) And you can stream this movie on HBO Max. It is a good movie about Hollywood, to be sure. It feels made by Hollywood for people in Hollywood about a fantasy of Hollywood studios killing egotistical writers. It reminded me somewhat of the Kevin Spacey flick Swimming with Sharks. So it's a fun watch, but does Tim Robbins deserve all the love he got this award season? Nah. nah, Second to talk about is our boy DDL for The Last of the Mohicans. And one, I didn't realize that Michael Mann directed this one. Yeah, it's a bit bit out of his oeuvre. Yeah. And then other than that, Day-Lewis feels like he's getting his sea legs here. This isn't his best performance. And he had already had an earned an Oscar for My Left Foot, which I have yet to see. So I will put that on my list. But you can see his career was about to take to the races after this. You could see how we would be getting Daniel Plainview from this man that Bill the Butcher lived behind his eyes, that he'd mesmerize as uh, Reynolds Woodcock and Phantom Thread. It's a good performance, and maybe it's just hindsight being kind to me, but it's not on par with some of his other work, and therefore feels now like a letdown. Like you almost want DDL to reprise it, you know, refigure it out now that he has all this other acting experience under his belt, but he is retired. But is that fair That's comparing fair. DDL to fair. himself? It's, All right. The the script to that movie is terrible. I, I So this was one that I went and saw with my family. I've seen this one a ton of times, but revisiting it was painful. And it's the acting is terrible in this movie. <laughs> Even <laughs> stay alive, whatever it goes. The bloody hell punish this. I want you to go. If we go, there's a chance there won't be a fight. Don't powder. If we don't go in that, there's no chance. None. You understand? Coward. You've done everything you can do. Save yourself. If the worst happens, you stay alive. If you don't kill it, they'll take you north of the Huron land. You spit, you hear? You strive to survive. You stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you, no matter how long it takes, no matter how far. I will find you. I will find you. So bad. 
so bad. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the Golden Globes of drama. If we take out the Oscar noms, you got Tom Cruise for A Few Good Men and Jack Nicholson for Hoffa. I feel like I'm going to regret doing this, but let's talk about Tom Cruise <laughs> in A Few Good Men. Okay. Santiago was a substandard Marine. He was being transferred. That's not what you said. You said he was being transferred because he was in grave danger. That's correct. You said I, he was in danger. I said grave danger. You said, is there I any recall other? what I, I said. I can have the court reporter read back to you. I know what I said. I don't have to have it read back to me like I'm... Then why the two orders? Colonel? Sometimes men take matters into their own hands. No, sir. You made it clear just a moment ago that your men never take matters in their own hands. Your men follow orders or people die. So Santiago shouldn't have been in any danger at all, should he have, Colonel? You snotty little bastard. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel? Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut concerned. these guys loose! Your Honor, you had Marcus inside a phony transport! Your Honor, you doctored the logbook! Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor! Consider yourself in contempt! Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. So would it be bold of me to say Tom Cruise is to Daniel Caffey as Jesse Eisenberg was to Mark Zuckerberg for The Social Network? The cocksure, self-doubting lawyer prone to aggressive outbursts seems tailor-made for him. And I don't know many other roles that Tom Cruise blurs the line of what we know about him versus the role he is playing. Add to that, those that have read the play know that this is really theatrical dialogue on screen. And you realize that Tom Cruise delivered monologues without the feeling of droning on. He also does his work adding emotional beats to dry dialogue exchanges with the other people on the film. A lot of credit has to go to Rob Reiner and his directing of this piece, but I don't know. This is Spro and Lee take on the Academy, but if it was Spro and Lee take on the Golden Globes, which if anyone listening wants to host a side project under the umbrella of our show, our phone lines are open. I wouldn't mind them awarding Mr. Cruz over Mr. Pacino, who ended up winning the award for Best Actor in Drama. What don't you like about A Few Good Men? Uh, it's very overacted. I think the story is good, but I think the dialogue is bad. If I'm looking for a Tom Cruise, I mean, Tom Cruise is eventually going to win an Oscar. But if I'm you looking, think? oh yeah, yeah. Whether he's it's not a, doing anything, like he's just doing the Mission Impossible's. Well, whether it's a, a lifetime achievement or whatever, uh, he'll win something eventually. But if I'm looking for an, a, a movie, a performance where he really truly deserved it, it was born on the 4th of July. But that would mean that we would have to take it away from Daniel Day-Lewis for my left foot, and I'm not going to do that. Golden Globes comedy. Uh, we already talked about Tim Robbins and The Player. Then there was Nicolas Cage in Honeymoon in Vegas, Billy Crystal in Mr. Saturday Night, Marcelo Mastroianni in Used People, and Tim Robbins in Bob Roberts. The Player and Mr. Saturday Night are enter- entertainment about entertainment, so if we double scrutinize, we can toss The Player. Sorry, Timmy, but let's backburn Billy for a second. Bob Roberts has Alan Rickman in it. It's another Tim Robbins performance. This time he plays a very tall politician. It's good, but like I said before, 
Tim Robbins is a good actor. He, we're going to run across a lot of good actors who are good at doing what they do, but it's hard for me to slate them for any types of awards. All I'll say about that. But we're here. We are finally at the Oscar nominees, and we're going to go one at a time. And I think I ranked them in order. We never talked about this, but I think I ranked them in order of how we would agree they ranked this year. So mm-hmm. we already got Al Pacino out of the way for Sense of a Woman. Okay. Which, would we put him at fifth? Would you put him at fifth? Yes, I would. Yeah, I would. But I don't, okay, well, I don't think our, I, I'm not sure if our lists would be the same, but um, you go ahead and start it out then, because I've, I've got it listed here on the document in a different order. So Gotcha. Well, I have at number four, Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven as William Will Money. Cowardly son of a bitch. You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. He's gonna decorate his saloon with my friend. You'd be William Money out of Missouri. Kill women and children. That's right. I've killed women and children. Killed just about everything that walks or crawled at one time or another. I'm here to kill you, little Bill. For what you did to Ned. Boys better move away. Have you and I ever talked about David Webb Peoples? No. Not that his name necessarily comes up a lot, but... He's the screenwriter, for for those of you that are like, who? Right, his name does not come up a lot, but this script was, I feel like I should stop saying this so much, but it was one of the ones we studied at UCLA. It reads like a book. It really does. I was going to say it's very novelistic and I I love it. Lots of motifs, lots of long scenes and sequences. Well, anyway, Peoples doesn't have a whole lot of movies under his belt, but he's written and adapted four scripts that became some really great movies. This, obviously, Blade Runner, 12 Monkeys, and an absolute 90s Kurt Russell classic directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, which I think is definite second chance cinema fodder, which is Soldier. (laughs) So I think Unforgiven comes pretty close to perfect. I guess. Can we do a supercut of all the times somebody adds, I guess, onto the end of the declarative sentence in this movie? Obviously, all the leads are great. The supporting players are so well cast. Anthony James, who plays Skinny, the friendly neighborhood pimp, gives such a great performance, and it was his last performance ever. Um, He actually just passed away at the beginning of the lockdowns in uh, 2020. The only other thing that, well, I can name two other things that he was in. He was in In the Heat of the Night, which was his first movie, but he was the guy in Naked Gun Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear, that's going to kill Priscilla Presley, and he starts starts singing memories with her while she's in the shower. (laughs) But he's fucking great in this movie. Real scumbag, but plays it like, anyway. We're talking Eastwood. He plays William Money, notorious murderer turned family man who credits his late wife with turning him around. When the movie picks up, he's this fairly unsuccessful pig farmer living modestly with his two kids. And as cliche would have it, a man comes to see him, a young gunfighter looking to enlist his help. The job is to hunt down and kill the two men responsible for assaulting and disfiguring the face of an innocent prostitute. Money doesn't want to do it. He's changed. But he needs those stacks. So as you might predict, way leads on to way, and the movie is off. And it sounds super derivative, but P- 
people's script gives so much to chew on and mull over. Every time I watch it, I find myself torn between loyalties. So anyway. Wait, hold on. Loyalties between who? Um, I feel sometimes bad for Gene Hackman, even though he's a right bastard and, you know, an abusive cop. So, did Eastwood deserve the gold? No. I mean, no. Never. He has never deserved a gold statue for acting. I love Eastwood, but he's like my boy Harrison Ford or my girl Sandra Bullock. They are American film icons. And when they make a movie, it's exciting, but they're not out there giving award-worthy performances. Agree? Disagree? I agree. Well, yeah. I feel like I say a lot, they're a good actor they or a good line reader, but there are some people that I just, I don't, they don't Daniel Day-Lewis it as much as a deserving person would. I think that my biggest issue is he doesn't, Eastwood, meaning he, uh, Eastwood doesn't do coy very well. And that's a big part of this character. And I'd say other than the climactic sequence, he has very few moments where he's brilliant. For example, the scenes where he's hallucinating and thinks that he's near death and he's like seeing that it's even Morgan Freeman can't save my eyes from rolling in those scenes. But I wonder what the movie would have been like if Eastwood had stayed behind the camera. I posed this question on Reddit, and as my fellow Redditors, most of them downvoted and rebuked me, but a few of them were at least cordial and shared their attitude uh, that it wouldn't have worked with anybody else. You agree with that, right? Well, first and foremost, I, I, I don't care how much you get downvoted on Reddit. I really would like a Spro and Lee take on the Academy subreddit, whatever <laughs> that is. I don't like, even if you get downvoted in oblivion because you would like to forget the titans mm-hmm. i think it would be i think it would be a good addition to the show also yes i i absolutely agree that a movie doesn't have to have complete oscar performances writing directing to be a great movie and i think unforgiven is a great movie despite the fact that the lead actor is not the an Oscar giving an Oscar winning performance. That's the fact that the the fact that the performance, the fact that the story, everything about this movie is almost like an homage to Eastwood's spaghetti Western days. Yeah. And And I was was told flatly on Reddit that Unforgiven is the final chapter in this meta arc of the rise and fall of the Western in America or Italy, as you pointed out. And I'd agree. (laughs) I mean, it sounds, it, it, it does feel like that, but I don't see a point to that arc. I would ask, is there a point to that arc? And two, did David Webb people say that? Or is that just people on Reddit trying to put more meaning behind Um, something that they live through? I've never heard David Webb people say anything. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he's probably got some interviews out there. (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah, no, that's that was that was somebody on Reddit. Yeah, because you notice a lot more with people nowadays, like they all want to have their they want their moment in history. I don't know. I see what you're saying, though. Mm -hmm. But what I don't see what is being said is with that meta arc. I I like when there's a point to something. Let's say that that's factual, that this is the final nail in the coffin of the American Western, which I don't believe it is. I think there have been several good Westerns made since. I think it's an excellent, uh, I'm going to use a word that my friend Ryan hates very much. It's a very postmodern Western. 
but I don't know what it's saying. Uh, the nearest I can tell is that it says violence is bad and so are violent people, but sometimes violence is necessary for retribution. I don't know. I find the first two acts of the movie lose a lot of their meaning when I when I realize, because I've watched it a ton of times, I own this movie, but I it loses something when I realize I'm just waiting patiently for this implausibly timid version of Eastwood to just enact vengeance for Ned and Delilah and maybe even English Bob in some ways. So I, I don't get the message, but I do trust Peoples, uh, the screenwriter. So I have to believe that there's something in there being said. F- and for all of the times that I've watched it in the last almost 30 years, I'm not smart enough to dig that meaning out. Maybe you're just thinking too hard about it. Because I think like the number one thing that I like about Unforgiven is I really like well-made movies off of a simple premise. And I said at the beginning of the show that three movies in this episode deal with penises. And this is actually the second one because the whole plot is centered around the fact that a prostitute giggled at a man's small package and he cut her face up. So it all began with that like very simple, inciting incident. And then this whole movie blossoms from that. Because it's so simple, perhaps the message is simple, and I can't help you out with that. But that that's my, the next time you watch it, be like, is it just as simple as violence is? Violence is everywhere. Everybody can be violent mm. or, or thirst for it. So back to my earlier point, do you think that this movie could have been made better? It, it just feels so on the nose with Eastwood in the lead. What if it had been, you know, somebody like Robert Duvall or maybe if it was made today, what if it was like Viggo Mortensen? I think our friend MC would say, why not, why not Mickey Rourke? <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, so being a good actor, perfect for a role does not mean the performance is one of the greatest. It just means the fit is. Eastwood, you know, capped off his Western roles with this one. And I think it's perfection um, in American cinema. But you are also right. It's Eastwood just being Eastwood. So why are we going to celebrate it with an Oscar? I don't know. Celebrate the achievement that is unforgiven. But the Eastwood nom was, I think, the Academy being bereft of imagination, which is sometimes no surprise of the Academy. I can live with that. I can live. And so moving did, on. And they oh. did celebrate the achievement. Because it won Best Picture this year. Correct. Which I'm not I'm not against that. Good. I wasn't accusing you of being against it. <laughs> well, you know, I like talking about this guy. Our next on the list is Robert Downey Jr. for playing Charlie Chaplin in Chaplin. Mm-hmm. What's the matter, Sid? For 10 years you've been on at me to make a talkie. Now I'm making a talkie. Yeah. But not this. I know this man. Born the same year, four days apart. He's like me, capable of anything. Nobody wants to see a film about Adolf fucking Hitler! I do! You're missing the point. In the end, it's not about Hitler. It's about the tramp. A little Jewish barber taking his place. Charlie. What's happening in Europe? It's not our problem. 90% of Americans say we should stay out of the war. That's 9 out of 10! It's not your business! You're a comic. Yes, Sid. And you are a Jew. Nevertheless, 
I've got to give it a try. Otherwise, what have I been doing? All these years. I know talking will be the end of the tramp, that's for sure. But at least he'll go out saying something I believe in. Or as it was originally called, Charlie. And uh, this isn't the last time we'll be talking about director Richard Attenborough, who I'm going to mention briefly. But so it's the early 90s. Robert Downey Jr. is still enjoying the critical acclaim that he'd earned after that performance in Less Than Zero. Have you seen Less Than Zero? Oh, yeah. I've seen anything that was adapted from a Brett Easton Ellis novel. Mm, Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) So Attenborough actually handpicked um, Robert Downey Jr. to play Chaplin when the studios wanted somebody that they thought would be more bankable. Dustin Hoffman's name was thrown around. Interestingly enough, the next time we talk about Richard Attenborough, Dustin Hoffman's fucking name was tossed around as well. Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, all of these guys were suggested to play Charlie Chaplin, but Attenborough fought for Robert Downey Jr., sort of like Jon Favreau would have to over a decade and a half later for Iron Man. And we all know how that turned out. I like this movie. I like all the performances. But I think other than the moments where he embodies the tramp, I'm really just watching Downey Jr. play an Englishman. I know that's reductive, and I know that there are certainly more weight than that to Chaplin's life. But the scenes of him flirting, the moments of inspiration, the hatred for the Nazis, it's all Wikipedia dramatization as far as I'm concerned. It's not to say it's not interesting, but it's not necessarily an Academy Award-winning performance. No, I can absolutely agree. I just recently read the script because I'm trying to read all of William Goldman's scripts this year, and he had done a pass on this one, which it pains me to say because William Goldman is such a good writer that I don't, I believe that Robert Downey Jr. could have been much more, we could have made a much better argument for Robert Downey Jr. as Charlie Chaplin to win the Oscar if he had better material to work with. Because he does a fine job in the role. It's just, it like you said, I really like how you put it with the Wikipedia dramatization. I feel like there's no necessarily heart to this movie, which makes it seem like you're just watching somebody's bullet points yeah, on yeah. one of the greatest actors, at least the greatest. Him and Buster Keaton are up there with like the silent film stars, but like my students the other day did not know who Charlie Chaplin was. So I went and grabbed Modern Times from the library and they don't know it yet, but they will watch it pretty soon. Because <laughs> uh-huh. I feel like you should at least know who Charlie Chaplin is. You should show them the kid. The kid is the best thing he ever did, in my opinion. I like the kid. I just feel like they would get into Modern Times a little bit more with all the stunt work. Hmm, fair enough. But does our younger audience know what Almost Never Was? typically don't like to paint somebody. I don't know of another success story, though, post-drugs better than Robert Downey's. And while I don't reference it every time I talk of him, but Downey was, and I think is, a poster child for two things that haven't changed in society. One, drugs are phenomenal at ruining lives. And two, our judicial system is nicer to some than others. But with Chaplin Downey, who used drugs to bond with his father, was approaching the beginning of his downfall, where in 1995, he would be smoking heroin. What does this matter for his performance? Why do I bring it up? The story of Charlie Chaplin in this film 
film is about a boy who hit his heart through performance. And there's a definite correlation between the Chaplin we see on the screen and the Downey in real life. And at this time, the voters nominating him didn't necessarily know how bad it was going to get or was at the time. But there's an earnest to it that I think anybody who likes Chaplin, but rather who loves Robert Downey Jr. needs to seek out and see. It might just be one of his most honest of performances, which makes it sort of tragic, albeit think existence with a happy ending. I got nothing else to add. That was nice. (laughs) Then we move on. But no Oscar for Robert Downey. No Oscar. And really, like I said, I think it's just because the material wasn't great. Steven Rea, The Crying Game is Fergus. Yes, what will it be? Bottle of Guinness. Bottle of Guinness. See that, Carl? See what, Dill? He gave me a look. Did he? He just cut his hair, you know. Yeah? So what do you think? Nice. There. Did it again. I saw that one. And what would you call that? That was a look. Ask him to ask me what I'm drinking. She wants to know. Do you want to know what she's drinking? A margarita. Now he can look. Ask him, does he like his hair cool? She wants to know, sir, do you like your hair? Tell her I'm very happy with it. He's Scottish, Carl. Scottish? Yeah. What'd he say? He agreed that he was. And what do you think his name might be? I have no thoughts on the subject. Jimmy. Jimmy? Jimmy, that's what he said. Hiya, Jimmy. Hi, Del. So I have an interesting story about this one. It's about my family, so I'll make it as vague as possible. But it's about the first time I ever knew of this movie's existence. So for those of you that have never seen The Crying Game, we're going to spoil the shit out of it, okay? We'll leave some details out so as not to entirely ruin the experience. Uh, But the main twist, which really kind of drummed up the lion's share of the interest back in 92, we're going to fucking talk about it. So if you don't know, here it comes. So it's 1993, because back then it took a year for movies to run their course before coming out on VHS. I'm at what I believe was a Thanksgiving dinner with my extended family over at my grandparents' house. One of the attendees at the dinner told us all about a movie that they had seen, explained the whole thing. So one guy, this is Fergus, Stephen Rea, captures another guy. This is Jody, played by Forrest Whitaker, and holds him hostage. Slowly, captor and captive become friends. Jody tells Fergus how women are trouble, all except for one woman, his woman, Dill. Eventually, Fergus has to kill Jody, and the man's dying wish is for Fergus to check in on Dill and let her know he was thinking about her in his final moments. And this is when the movie kind of becomes a completely different movie. Fergus does check in on Dill. He keeps his identity secret, though, and predictably begins falling for her, and Dill seems to like him back. And when they're about to finally consummate their love affair, Dill reveals her naked body to Fergus. The camera begins on her face and tilts slowly downward to a well-groomed penis between her legs. Of course, I'm retelling it differently. Um... (coughs) There was a very serious tone of disgust from this person when retelling the story. More importantly, I don't remember the plot summary going beyond this point. I always assumed that was the end of the movie with the wiener. 
I'm so on the same. I'm glad you brought because yeah, no. Before the, I only watched this movie for this podcast, thinking like I knew, I knew Bruce Willis was alive. I knew she was a heat. You know, like. <laughs> I thought that was the ending of Crying Game. Well, I I think what that just means is the person that told me this story over turkey and stuffing immediately shut the movie off after the man meat made its appearance. (laughs) I think they were like, fuck this shit. Um, So despite hearing this plot summary, which stopped dinner dead, I might add, it didn't really ruin in the movie for me because the movie goes on and on for about an hour after that. In fact, it kind of helped me appreciate the first hour. I knew the big secret and then I get to see all the clever ways that the script foreshadows it. So speaking of the script, it's pretty damn good. It's one of those rare scripts where the characters are so developed, it almost feels as though we're reading a novel. I've already said that, starting to repeat ourselves, but it's true. And it's frequently surprising and not just because of the transgender reveal. Despite the powder keg of political minds that this story contains, Neil Jordan keeps the focus on the love story. And it shows amazing restraint and ultimately that makes the movie more accessible for me. But we're here to talk about Stephen Rea. So he plays Fergus. Not in a whole lot of stuff. In fact, if I gun to my head, I think Interview with the Vampire is the only other thing I can name that he's in. And he's very good. But unfortunately for him, Forrest Whitaker, who plays Jody, and especially Jay Davidson, who plays Dill, just eat up fucking scenery every time they're in the frame. As Fergus Rea has a pretty basic role to play here, he's us. He joins the IRA, but he can't help being buddies with the hostage that he's supposed to hate. He lacks the killer instinct, but he's not above chivalric violence. He doesn't want to kill people. He's quick to say he's star- sorry. It's kind of boring. Dill and Jody are so much more interesting and more endearing. And Ray is good, but Forrest Whitaker and Jay Davidson make the movie, especially Jay Davidson. So no Oscar for Ray. So if our audience has not seen The Crying Game, this is one. I think this is the one out of this episode where I go, go see this one. Especially if you did not see it because you thought it was spoiled for you. The twist and the turn happens in the middle. So it's kind of like a fight club, I guess, kind of twist where even if you know it, you're still going to enjoy the movie. You just won't get that initial, oh my, oh my moment, I guess. Knowing it, you don't have to see the movie twice to get all the foreshadowing that the writer had did did during the movie. So I got a good chuckle out of it when at the very beginning, like you said, Forrest Whitaker is being held hostage by Rhea and he's got his hands bound behind his back. And so and Forrest Whitaker has to go to the bathroom. And so he does. And then Forrest is like, can you put my penis back in my pants? And Ray is like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And Forrest is like, come on, man, it's just a piece of meat, Mm -hmm. which is good foreshadowing because that is exactly how he feels about Dill and Dill's appendage. And this is way before, you know, we were um, gender reassignment surgery was as common as it is today. So the writing is really good about this. The other thing that kind of like popped out to me that was interesting was I feel like this movie to me is almost like a Requiem for a Dream. It's almost like a Darren Aronofsky flick where I don't ever have to see it again, but I would love to talk to anybody who's seen it and get their opinion on it because I feel like their opinion will speak very much so toward their psychology 
Because so there was a there was an article, I think it was in a gay pride magazine, and they were talking about how this movie could have been better if it was from Dill's point of view that because they did it from Fergus's point of view, they pulled punches and they didn't get as into the controversial topic as they could. And I feel like one, sure, maybe I'd kind of I pretty much disagree that it's not pulling punches. I think what that happened was Jay Davidson is so good in this movie as a female. The fact that he fooled so many of the initial audience members to believe that he was a she and then they felt duped in like the middle end and then the rest of the movie is having to decide whether or not like Rhea does if they're gay you know like type of thing like I don't if they don't care if they yeah if they don't care because he initially then goes no 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 I fell in love with this person regardless of his or her gender so it's such a fascinating movie that I feel like does not it gets spoiled by the fact that everybody feels like it got spoiled by the fact that they know how they know the twist agreed I had like regret not regressive not nostalgic like if you could if there's a term for hateful nostalgia (laughs) that's what I kind of got because as I then I was like well what happened to Jay Davidson he's so good in this movie he was really good in Stargate like what happened and then you realize that he was just discovered in a Hollywood party was amazing in the crying game got so much you know shit for the role and what became of the role and everything happening from there he hated fame he wanted nothing to do with it they were like everybody was kind of hounding him wondering what he was going to dress for the oscars you have such a normal person that he he gave it up he was like no i'm not going to do this i'm going to be i think he was like a fashion not designer like a fashion uh well that was like a fashion he was a dresser it seemed like somebody that an an, in, an influencer before his time yeah i wish we could see what else he had in the tank he even said like he didn't know where he was going to fit in because as a gay male the gay culture at the time uh preferred masculine males and he is a very slender frame very slender male which let him pull off dill as well as he did so I know this is all about Steven Rea, but I don't know if we're ever going to come back and talk about the crying game. And I just want to get it out exactly, there that this exactly. is we need to stop this apologizing is like for <laughs> digging into these movies. We really do. I'm telling you. But this is a performance for the ages. I felt like anytime Dill was on the screen, I forgot anything. I was just like, my God, <laughs> like this is so good. Just the sass and everything. Yeah, when when she reveals herself and he does he he doesn't hit her. He like he, oh, he, he no, he slaps her across the face because uh, she re, she replies like anywhere but the face. I can take it. The way she and, just sits uh, there and uh, lights a cigarette and is like mm-hmm. I, later on when she's like, even when you were throwing up, I knew you were still nice and that you cared. <laughs> just like the beginning with the guy from Moulin Rouge as the bartender and they're talking oh, Jim through Broadway. him. Jim, yeah, Jim Broadbent. Like the writing for the like that's right. Then I was like, I appreciate this script. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he if uh, Davidson feels used at all. Oh, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure nobody protected him. But I pre- totally appreciate Jay Davidson, and I hope he found the happiness that he so deserves. <laughs>
Okay. So I think Rhea got overshadowed by his co-star, and that is what hurt his chances of winning the most. And you're right as well, that Forrest Whitaker, who I thought, because I feel like he got like an introducing Forrest Whitaker nod. So I didn't think he was going to be in there as much as he was. So, of course, he's always good. Which, that brings us, I mean, we have run through the gamut. We are at the only person that could possibly be up for the Oscar of the year, I believe. And if you haven't guessed it yet, we talked about him in the first season. And this is Denzel Washington for playing the title role of Malcolm X. Do you know where you came from? What's your name? Malcolm Little. No, that's the name of the slave masters who own your family. You don't even know who you are. Who are you? Say, Roseland. Roseland. He was a pusher, a hustler, a thief. You ready to tackle the streets? Yeah, I'm ready. Let him come. Please. <laughs> Respected, convicted. State your number, little. I forgot it. In a dream that's divine. He was a prisoner who set himself free. A Muslim must be strikingly upright. I will not touch the white man's drugs, his liquor, his women, so that those in the darkness can see the power of the light. I will not lie, cheat, or steal. I believe you will remain faithful. Yes. He was a follower who became a leader. You're not an American. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. He brought honor to disobedience. I suggest you look outside that window. You've been laying down and bowing down for 400 years. I think it's time to stand up. All right, break it up. You got what you wanted. Now, I'm not satisfied. That's too much power for one man to have. And a voice to a people who longed to be heard. No, you're saying I'm anti-white. I'm sorry, Betty. I haven't been the best husband. Do you advocate violence? No, sir. Academy Award winner Denzel Washington's most electrifying performance. Director Spike Lee's most powerful film. Can we all live together? I sincerely hope so. Yeah, man. Of all the nominated performances this year, this is the one that I enjoy returning to the most. To be fair, I'd I'd never seen The Crying Game, but Unforgiven and Chaplin, I've watched multiple times. Malcolm X, even with a runtime of three hours and 22 minutes, which I'm sure deters, you know, a lot of people from ever watching it for the first time, either that or, you know, feeling like they're going to be provoked Spike Lee style. I'd still venture a guess that of the 10 times that I've seen this every single time, it just flies by. I mean, it's not thematically linked. But the viewing experience reminds me of The Great Escape or Gettysburg or, you know, The Godfather 2, which we just got done talking about. I get completely lost in the journey. And when I know it's getting close to the ending, I get sad like summer is over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I don't know, man. I don't feel that way about all long movies, but uh, some of them, some of them just take you on the ride. I'll let you give your opinion, and then I'll I'll give well, mine. I'm I'm accused of a lot of things. One of them is being too nostalgic, and it reminds me of when I was a newly christened teenager. I mean, this movie was on HBO all the time, which for some reason we had totally free for something like eight years at my parents' house. Public library may have had free rentals of which I certainly took advantage, but they were mostly canonical American cinema. It was because of HBO I was able to see able to see movies like this, newer movies, and to see them over and over again. And I know we're supposed to talk about Denzel, but can I take a moment to talk about why this movie was important to me personally? I mean, you already did with Crying Game, no? So might as well. Ah. <laughs> so it was enlightening. I had no idea who Malcolm X was. X was a, one of a multitude of black American historical figures that I wasn't taught about, not by my parents and certainly not by any history teacher. Black History Month was really only there to celebrate Mar Martin Luther King Jr. And even then, it was really only just some posters hung around the school for 28 days and maybe a short passage in reading class. And even though today's public school curricula are marginally more inclusive than it was when we were kids, I still hear too many young people defining Malcolm through one very reductive maxim. MLK was for peace. Malcolm X was for violence, which of course he wasn't. He was for defending oneself against racial violence, not for starting it. And and to say so is damaging to an innocent and important man's legacy. Unfortunately, this distinction is one of those things. It's one of the only things that young people can say when asked about who Malcolm X was. That and the, you know, the dude with the glasses. Um, you got done saying that you thought Robert Downey Jr.'s story of defeating drugs and achieving something later in life was, you know, maybe unparalleled. And I would submit that Malcolm X was an example to everyone that where you begin isn't necessarily where you're going to end up. He championed education, mm -hmm. but not the kind of education where teachers are sentinels and students are vessels and curriculum is restrictive. He was moralistic, deeply passionate, and a master of empowerment. Man, would I love to see him slide into some of the conversations with today political leaders. And that's my impression of the man based on my own reading and research, none of which would have probably ever happened without Spike's film. I don't want to take anything away from MLK. His dedication to peaceful resistance and Mahatma Gandhi's, for that matter, is so relevant to the Christian dogma of my upbringing, yet so unfathomable when you look at the way Black Americans have been manipulated, manacled, murdered. To be sure, MLK's message is inspiring, but Malcolm's was no less so. He was just inspiring in a different way. Read his writing, listen to his speeches. His anger is palpable, and he doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't repress that outrage. Anger and outrage, if properly channeled, are quite effective motivators. Suffice to say, America needed both of these men's philosophies and were robbed of them far too soon. That's why this movie was important to me. And that's not talking about Denzel's performance necessarily, but it's an important movie to me and God, certainly to plenty of other people. Absolutely. I must emphasize at the outstart that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is not a politician. That's right. That's right. So I'm not here this afternoon as a Republican, nor as a Democrat. Tell us, brother. Not as a Mason, nor as an Elk. Well, tell us what you're here for. Not as a Protestant, nor a Catholic. Right. Not as a Christian, on, nor a Jew, All right, not as a Baptist, nor a Methodist. Yes. In fact, not even as an American. Yes, because if I was an American, the problem that confronts our people today wouldn't even exist. So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born, a black man. Before there was any such thing as a Republican or a Democrat, we were black. 
Before there was any such thing as a mason or an elk, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Jew or a Christian, we were black people. In fact, before there was any such place as America, we were black. And after America has long passed from the scene, there will still be black people. I'm gonna tell you like it really is. Every election year, these politicians are sent up here to pacify. They're sent here and set up here by the white man. This is what they do. They send drugs in Harlem down here to pacify us. They send alcohol down here to pacify us. They send prostitution down here to pacify us. Why, you can't even get drugs in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get prostitution in Harlem without the white man's permission. You can't get gambling in Harlem without the white man's permission. Every time you break the seal on that liquor bottle, that's a government seal you're breaking. Oh, I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok. This is what he does. And I do. So I don't want to start this off on a bad note. I've been taught to give notes <laughs> and to always start and end on a positive note. So to start on a positive note, I will say I have been on record saying that I do not like biopics, especially when the subject has already passed away, because I don't know necessarily if I'm getting an image of them that they would necessarily appreciate. And I'm right there or with if you. it's true. I don't feel that way when it comes to Malcolm X. I feel like this is a very honest, very competent portrayal of the man. Good word. But I texted you while watching this movie that I do not believe I am a fan of Spike Lee. I think I'm on record at some point or another, probably during Defy Bloods convo, that he hasn't done anything good since Inside Man. Granted, I haven't seen everything, and this is just personal opinion, but if I tell you I give a movie 30 minutes before it becomes background noise, do the right thing may be the only thing he has made that stays forefront. Inside Man was good, but after reading the script, I I do believe that the script was better. But this is a prime example of a performance being great, despite everything else around it, and once again, that is my opinion. But there's a reason why the script wasn't nominated for anything across the awards board. Denzel's Malcolm X takes pedestrian writing and electrifies it. It absolutely no mistakenly helps that Malcolm X was an amazing speech giver. Spike Lee's Malcolm X is at its best when he's delivering, when Denzel is delivering Malcolm's writing and not Lee's. When the action is placed at the podium and all Spike's job is to yell action for the audience to cheer the camera to move and Denzel to speak, he invigorates you with his passion. The only thing I like about the long runtime of Spike Lee's Malcolm X is that Denzel goes from a lowly, almost beggarly numbers runner for a goddamn always fun to see Delroy Lindo, who I don't think gets enough work, I guess. I, I want to see more of Delroy Lindo. Every time he's on the screen, I effing love him. Mm-hmm. But Denzel goes from a numbers runner to a convict, to a family man, to a leader of the people. It's an all-encompassing performance, demanding Washington pull together all of his acting chops. It's a demanding role, to be sure, offering the actor no places to hide any flaws in his game. It's a flawless performance, showing the world that Denzel is what Daniel Day-Lewis was hinting at becoming, one of the finest thespians of multiple generations. And as a non-fan of auteur Spike Lee, I wonder how much better I would have liked the 
film had he not put his personal stamp on it. But the one thing that cannot be argued is that Denzel turned in the best performance of the year and was let down by the Academy because they, perhaps rightly, recognized that Al Pacino's acting style might be waning. If they were going to award Pacino, they would have to do it sooner than later. Ugh. Regardless, that's what I feel honorary Oscars are for. Well, Best actor of 1993 should have gone to Denzel Washington. One of your more controversial remarks sometimes back was a call for black people to get rifles and form rifle clubs. Do you still favor that for self-defense? Well, I don't see why that's controversial. I think that if white people find themselves the victims of the same kind of violence that black people have found themselves victims of here in America, and if the government was either unable or unwilling to do anything about it, uh, I think that it would be intelligence on their part to defend themselves. What about the guns, Malcolm? When you tell your people to stop being violent against my people, I'll tell my people to put away their guns. Next question. So, if you listened to our show last season, you heard Emily and I talk for a brief moment about Denzel and Malcolm X. I mean, I'm not even sure that it's close. Who would you say would be your second pick? Would it be uh, Robert Downey? No, no, no. That's why I put Stephen Rea. Oh, okay. The one right before this. I thought I put that there. Well, in any event, the Academy stole this award from Denzel. And Pacino ran off with it. And you know what? Pacino knows what he did. He knows it was a farce, just as he knew his nomination for Best Supporting Actor in 73 was a farce. The difference is this time the farce is in his favor, so he takes the money and runs. But I think Denzel's career will... I mean, Denzel's career is spotty, but he's not lost a step. I mean, I talked about in an earlier episode this season how I finally got around to watching Flight and his performance in Fences. I'm not interested in anything that Pacino has anymore. And I I think into his 80s, if Denzel's still acting, he's still going to be someone who, whenever he comes out with a movie, I'm like, I got to see that. Maybe not in the theater, maybe not immediately, but I got to get around to that. So when Washington didn't win the Oscars, Spike Lee, as he's always wont to do, made his displeasure known. Little known fact is that the NAACP did not reward Washington for his performance in Malcolm X either. They awarded him for Mississippi Masala, a film I have yet to see and only heard about it when researching this episode. I don't know... Yeah, I can confidently say I've never had a conversation with anyone that goes, meh, I don't like Denzel. He is beloved by all. Yep. Always. And Malcolm X, regardless of anything that came before or after, even the hurricane, which we (laughs) rewarded last year, is Denzel's most complete performance. It's his... Malcolm X is his godfather. And since we corrected the Academy's slight on Al Pacino, we are now able to correct their slight against Mr. Washington. And I am proud in this world of make-believe we live in as two (laughs) mediocre dudes with the podcast that we are able to do so today. Before you put on this record, understand this is for all of my ancestors who were raped, who were killed, and hung because of their plight for freedom and for dignity. They died for me, and they died for you. This is for them to know that, yes, even today, in 1992, we are still fired up, and we're still talking about revolution. I guess that's another episode of Sproul and Lee, Come and Gone, another Oscar uh, redistributed. And more explanations for Spro once he's sitting in some producer's office who just got done listening to us shit all over his movie. My advice would be to blame it on me. Next time, we are going to go back in time even further than 1992. We're going to go back to the movies of 1982 
and we're going to look at the Best Director Oscar of 1983, which was given to Richard Attenborough for his film Gandhi. It's funny, like when you and I were kind of like collating and coming together and being like this worked and that didn't work from season one. I think I told you the lowest listener count on any of our episodes was when we did uh, the Ordinary People Best Director episode. Yet not only have we gone back to almost as long ago as that, but we went further back into the 70s. I feel like we are educating through entertainment. The farther we go back, the little bit more of a gym education it is. Well, I think it's worth talking about. We're going to get to talk about some movies like John Carpenter's The Thing, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, Amy Heckerling's Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and other it was a good year for movies so i think we can wrap this one up until next time friends i'm lee i'm spro and as always we hope to see you next time sitting front row when the envelopes are red Well, that does it for this episode. Tune in November 15th for our next one, where we host a very special guest, uh, and we discuss a film hinted about in the season one finale from last year. So wave over your seat filler, take a break, and make sure to be back promptly two Mondays from now when we will discuss Best Director of 1983. And if you're new to our little shindig, Spro and Lee episodes, Old and Fresh, are released every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or send an email to takeontheacademy at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, complaints, recipes, or manifestos. We like hearing from you. We'll see you front row when the envelopes are red. about a red.